Right, today we come to Hebrews chapter 7, an exciting chapter. And I'll just remind you the overarching big theme, big idea of the book of Hebrews is basically showing you Jesus is the best. Okay, that's about as simple as I can make it for you. But what ways is Jesus the best? What ways is he superior? Well, we're going to get into uh, some more specifics on that here in this chapter. But before we look at this chapter, I need to give you a little Old Testament history. Because the guy who is introduced to us here in Hebrews 7 is, is mentioned in your Old Testament. See, way back in the very first book of your Bible, in the book of Genesis, there was a guy named Abraham, and he had a very big problem. See, there was this coalition of Canaanite kings and armies who had uh, attacked the city of Sodom and had taken Abraham's nephew, Lot. Well, Abraham decided, uh, I can't tolerate that, so he recruits 318 trained men from his own household, and he takes off in hot pursuit. Eventually, he catches up to these kidnappers who had taken Lot and, and many other people and stuff from Sodom. And under the cover of darkness, under night, Abraham deployed his, his small forces in a surprise attack. Maybe, you know, kind of something maybe what the SAS might do. But anyway, God gave him the victory eventually. It wasn't uh, the fact that these 318 men were somehow way more awesome than the uh, Canaanites. God gave the victory nevertheless. And in fact, in the Genesis account, in Genesis 14, verse 16, if you want to look at Genesis, go for it. But uh, verse 16 says that Abraham recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So Abraham has this great victory that God gives him. He returns back home as a conquering hero. You can imagine uh, here, here Abraham and all these people and all the plunder that they, they're bringing back. He comes back. Uh, leading his men and all the captives and this plunder back, coming back into the city of Jerusalem. If you can imagine that, then you can kind of begin to appreciate Abraham's very strange encounter with this mysterious figure who is named Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, verse 18, it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Very uh, mysterious encounter. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Melchizedek. He just kind of shows up and he's gone. And uh, you... And so you say, well, wow, why is this mysterious? Well, this is the only historical mention of Melchizedek in your Old Testament. Now, notice I said historical because uh, what we just read is, is all we know about this guy. Just a couple verses. Yet here's Abraham. He allowed Melchizedek to bless him. And, and Abraham gives a tenth of all of the spoils and the plunder that he got from all of those Canaanite armies. 
So Abraham's encounter took place somewhere around the year 2000 B.C. And then for 1,000 years, there is no mention of Melchizedek until around the year 1000 B.C. The Holy Spirit throws Melchizedek into your Bible right in the midst of the Psalter. And here it is. It's in Psalm 110, verse 4. We've never heard about this guy for a 1,000 years, and here he is again. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wow. (laughs) So 2000 B.C., you get a couple verses on Melchizedek. Nothing for a thousand years. And then his name shows up again in Psalms. And then here we go, another thousand years and no mention of this guy. Kind of strange. But there you go, right in that verse right there, in Psalm 110, God declared that he was going to do something new. His intention is to bring into history one who would be a priest like Melchizedek. So this is a prophecy. And in this prophecy, God was announcing a totally new priesthood from the one that he had prescribed for Israel way back at Mount Sinai. You read about that in your Old Testament, starting in Exodus, Leviticus, so forth. Now just imagine for a moment that you are the writer of Hebrews. You're writing to encourage the, the soon-to-be-persecuted church. But also imagine yourself reflecting back in your Old Testament on Melchizedek's history and, and even this particular prophecy in Psalm 110. And then you make the connection between Genesis, Psalms, and what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach here in Hebrews. You make that connection that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 110. He is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Wonderful connection. And now here in Hebrews chapter 7 you present what to, to the church what you have learned. Here we go. With that little introduction, our Old Testament introduction, look at Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We'll stop there at the end of that paragraph. Now, here's the proposition I'm proposing for you from from this particular text today. That God wants you to know something. Even though you're not a Hebrew, most likely, I don't think any of you are, God still wants you to know that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood. And then if you get that connection, then you'll see where this is going in a moment. But let's see, how is Melchizedek's priesthood superior to Israel's priesthood? Well, that's in the first three verses. And we see, first of all, here that Melchizedek's priesthood came with two offices. See, he's a priest and a king. So Melchizedek's priesthood was as a king and priest. He's both at the same time. So, it's, it says here in our text, Melchizedek himself was a king. In fact, four times in these two verses here, he's referred to as a king. Rulership of any sort was something that was totally foreign in that uh, Levitical priesthood, which God had prescribed in your third book of your Bible. Uh, so they were, they were only a priest. You couldn't be a priest and a king. Melchizedek's universal priesthood as well as his royal office beautifully typify Jesus. See, Jesus actually holds three offices, doesn't he? He's prophet, priest, and king. So we see that it shows his saviorhood as well as Jesus' lordship as as the perfect priest and the perfect king. Though never known in Israel, the dual role of priest-king was predicted by her prophets. So if they had been reading their Old Testaments properly, they, they should have seen this, because there's a, there's a prophet by the name of Zechariah, and he was speaking of the coming Messiah. And here's what he said in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. He said, Yet it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So the prophet Zechariah is pointing to someone very special here that was unknown through Israel's history. Someone who has two offices. He is a priest and king. The Bible mentions Salem that Melchizedek was king of Salem there, verse 1. Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. So Melchizedek ruled over God's special city. Uh, At this point in time, apparently it was called Salem. And it's interesting, uh, Jerusalem's gone by other names as well, including Zion. But look what Psalm 132 says. For the Lord has chosen Zion, or Jerusalem. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. 
Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now we're not told when God first considered Jerusalem to, to be his holy special city. But he had a faithful king here who was a faithful priest. And he was there even before the nation of Israel came to be there. Even during the time of Abraham. So we see that Melchizedek's priesthood was as a king and priest. Very unusual. The, the other reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood is that Melchizedek's priesthood was righteous and peaceful. You'll take note of that in verse 2. Uh, his very name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. But it also says he is also king of Salem. Salem means peace. So Melchizedek was both righteous and peace. His very, as I said, his very name means king of righteousness, although we have no historical record of what his monarchy was like. We're told he nevertheless ruled righteously and peacefully. And so the purpose of Israel's priesthood was to obtain righteousness for the people. All those sacrifices that God had told his, his people to do were just they were made to restore the people to a right relationship with God. But they never succeeded, at least in any deep and meaningful, lasting sense, sorry. But God honored those sacrifices that were properly made. God told them to do that, and if they did it uh, with the right, right hearts, right motives, and the right way, God honored those. And you think about it, why would he do that? Well, he's the one who prescribed it. Uh, but they were never meant to remove the sin. Uh, all those sacrifices were only a type of the one perfect sacrifice that could and did remove the sin. They were all pointing to something, if you will. They, they symbolized the sacrifice to come, the one that would make men righteous and thereby bring men peace. But they themselves couldn't make men righteous. Those sacrifices couldn't actually give you peace. As a temporary ritual, they accomplished their purpose, but they couldn't bring men to God. They, they're never meant to bring men to God. As it was, only one man, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies only one time of year. There was this continual separation between men and God. So they weren't meant to bring men to God in one sense. But Melchizedek, though he's king of righteousness and of peace could not make men righteous or give them peace. Not ultimately. Only the divine priest could give righteousness and peace. So again, we have this mysterious figure by the name of Melchizedek pointing to the one who does give righteousness and peace. And we can read about that in your New Testament. For example, in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified or counted righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the necessary order here. You don't get the peace unless the righteousness comes first. If you don't get that right standing with God first, you cannot be at peace with God, nor can you feel peaceful in your heart. 
In fact, it's interesting that uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 32 said this, the work of righteousness will be peace. In the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. So it's righteousness that works that peace. You, the, the, the fruit of righteousness, if you will, is peace. So what the blood of the bulls and the goats could not do, the blood of Jesus Christ did. Israel's sacrifices lasted only as a person would eventually sin again, which, of course, wouldn't be very long. So they only lasted until that person sinned again. And so Jesus' sacrifice, though, lasts for all eternity. And once reconciled to God through Christ, will never be counted as sinful again. You are considered a saint. You, you're, you are righteous. You are counted righteous. That's what justified means. You are declared righteous, even though you're still a sinner. An amazing concept, isn't it? Why is that? Well, Christ is the true King of righteousness. When He gives you His righteousness, then that's how you God sees you. I love the way the psalmist put it. It's just a beautiful, picturesque way. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 85. In the Lord, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You'll see it right there. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. <laughs> Beautiful picture, is it not? The two things that men have longed for are a sense of righteousness before God. We, we want to be at peace with ourselves and with everything around us. But these blessings have connected with each other and have become a reality in the Messiah, Jesus Himself. It's the only way they, those two things come together and connect, or as that verse says, they've kissed. And so Christ came to give us His righteousness that we might be at peace with God. In other words, you can now have this right standing with God. And so Melchizedek pictured that. With his two offices, he is king of righteousness and king of peace. He's both. How else do we see that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to Israel's priesthood? Well, according to verse 3, Melchizedek's priesthood did not require family connections. Well, <clears throat> be careful with verse 3. It has been misinterpreted. People read verse 3 and do weird things with it. I mean, it, it does say that he is without father or mother or genealogy. And so some would say, well, see, he didn't have a father and a mother. Well, that doesn't make him human. And so there is that is one interpretation. Some have said, well, he's an angel or he's something else. But that's not the point. You miss the point if, if, you, if you go down that track. See, Israel's priesthood, you need to understand here, is something that was entirely hereditary, going way, way back to someone named Levi. That's where you get that whole Levitical priesthood, who was in the loins of Abraham, uh, coming from Aaron. Remember, Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. And so Melchizedek's was a personal priesthood. Now, from the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood, genealogy determined everything. You couldn't be a priest 
unless you were a descendant of Levi and Aaron. If you descended from Aaron, then you could serve as a priest, at least in Israel. If you didn't descend from Aaron, guess what? You couldn't be a priest. And so consequently, the priests were often were more concerned about their genealogies and their pedigrees than actually being holy. There's plenty of guys acting as priests who were not holy. Eli comes to my mind as one. So they weren't, uh, they weren't necessarily concerned about that. But oh, they come from Levi. They come from Aaron, right? So therefore, they're qualified. But Melchizedek here is said to have been without father, without mother, without genealogy. So what does that mean? <laughs> it simply means that the biblical record says nothing about his parents and about his origin. Obviously, he had to have a father and mother. Every human being has a father and mother. Unless you're talking about the first, the, the first man, Adam, who was created by God. Had, he had to have a biblical, or a, a, sorry, a parents, some sort of origin. And so you say, well, then what's the point? Well, the point in Hebrews is that Melchizedek's family is irrelevant. Not important. That's why it's not mentioned. Not important to his priesthood, anyway. So whereas the Aaronic priesthood, or Israel's priesthood, the, the genealogy was everything. You couldn't be a priest without that record. But with Melchizedek, those, those family connections are irrelevant. So in this, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Not because genie, or Jesus had no genealogy. Of course he did. You, you can read about that in your Bibles. But, but because Jesus, Jesus' genealogy wasn't significant in regard to his priesthood. And to be sure, Jesus' royal genealogy is definitely important. In fact, you can read about that in Matthew and Luke. In fact, in in Matthew's gospel, in the very first verse, Matthew's trying to show Jesus is king. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to show you his genealogy. But with Jesus, his lineage is not traced to Aaron or Levi. You won't find Aaron or Levi anywhere in Jesus' genealogy. Because that's not where Jesus came from. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus Christ was not qualified for Israel's priesthood. He's after the order of Melchizedek. And so like Melchizedek, as far as his priesthood was concerned, he had no priestly genealogy and frankly jesus didn't need that genealogy so jesus christ was chosen as a priest because of his personal worth because of who he was it was his quality that made him worthy to be a priest so he was chosen because of who he was not because of where he came from or because of who his parents and great 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 grandparents were right Verse 16 in your in Hebrews 7 says, Jesus has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So it's who he was. It's his indestructible life that made him worthy. And so like Melchizedek's, Jesus' qualifications were personal. They were not hereditary. They weren't based on his ancestors or a genealogy. 
the fourth reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood is it was forever. It was forever. Look at verse 3. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice he is not the Son of God. That is one of the interpretations. He is not the Son of God. Notice at least my translation says he is like the Son of God. He is not Jesus. This is not the pre-incarnate Jesus we're talking about here. Melchizedek was a real human being. But it, it's different uh, from, from Israel's priesthood. His priesthood was forever. Now, individually, if you were a priest in Israel, you could serve from the time you were 25 years old until you were 50, theoretically. No priest could serve more than 25 years max. So collectively, the priesthood was also a temporary thing. Obviously, 25 years is, is not forever. And so this all began in the wilderness when the covenant with Moses was made and God gave his law to Israel. It ended, though, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Israel's priesthood ended. Uh, as far as I know, they haven't been sacrificing uh, since uh, A.D. 70. The temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. So the, what, what was going on for a long, long time ended. And Israel's priesthood was for that old covenant and, and only for the old covenant. However, Melchizedek's priesthood had no such time restrictions. It was forever. He is a priest perpetually. It is not that he lived forever. Remember, he is a human being. So that's not the point. But the order of the priesthood which he ministered was forever. If he had lived forever, he would not be a type, but then he would be a uh, just a, a part of the reality. I mean, you think about this, for example. He, Melchizedek is, again, pointing to Christ. It's kind of like, here's how I can illustrate it for you. Uh, Let's say you, t- you have a picture of a beautiful landscape. Isn't it frustrating? I find it frustrating trying to take, sometimes trying to take pictures of beautiful landscapes. It just To me, I, I bring them home and I try to show my family, look at this beautiful landscape I got to experience. And everyone's sitting there, that's great. It's never as good as being the real thing. Never. The pictures never do it justice. It seems that's the way I experience it anyway. And so the picture of a landscape is not... The landscape. It's, it's only a representation of that landscape, <laughs> that beautiful scenery. And the fact that we have no biblical or other record of the beginning or the end of Melchizedek's personal priesthood symbolizes something. It symbolizes the eternality of his priestly order. No beginning, no end. So it's a type of... Christ. It's a type of Christ's eternal priesthood. In fact, if you look at what verse 24 says, verse 24 and 25 kind of wrap up the whole chapter in, in a way, and it says this, that He holds His priesthood permanently. Talking about Jesus, 
that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that's kind of summing up this this whole argument on on Jesus coming in the likeness of Melchizedek's priestly order. You say, well, what's the point? Well, the text is showing you that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood. Now, you're not a Jew. You're not a Hebrew. But try to put yourself in their sandals for a moment. If you were a Jew or a Hebrew, you... And, and, and the, the whole Israel's priesthood system and the sacrifices and everything that goes with that, 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 is, that is supreme to you. That is vitally important. Your whole life kind of uh, revolves around that in many ways. And now the Bible is telling you, well, <clears throat> actually Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to my system. Whoa. Whoa, you mean there's something greater than my system that to, to me is the greatest? Yeah, there is. And Melchizedek's priesthood points to Christ, the coming Messiah, the one who came. And so we see that uh, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood, but why? Why? Why is the author of Hebrews saying that? Well, that's verses 4 to 10. There's this talking about what happened way back in the book of Genesis. And I'm just going to give you two things that come from verses 4 through 10. Number one, why is Melchizedek's priesthood superior to Israel's priesthood? Number one, we see here Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Now you need to understand something. You've got a little bit of a uh, historical barrier, cultural barrier here. In the ancient world, paying tithes to someone else was a recognition of that person's superiority. It was also a sign of subjection to that person. Now, you might be able to see a connection here when God has the Israelites giving tithes to Him. That's also showing subjection to the true God. But here the Holy Spirit is demonstrating that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, he's greater than Aaron, he's, he is greater than them all, those fathers of that system, the Israel's priesthood. He is showing that this priest king is better than Abraham. Now that's significant because Abraham, remember, was the forefather of Levi and Aaron. And that is amazing when you consider just how great Abraham is. He is he's an amazing figure. We find him mentioned many times through our Bibles. He has great status. He is certainly a main character in our Bibles, uh, in the Old as well as the New Testament. In fact, uh, several times, at least three times, your Bible calls him a friend of God. That is a very unique title. He was called the father of the nation of Israel. In Genesis 12, God said that he, that God would bless Abraham and he would be 
uh, a father of many nations, that through him the whole world would be blessed. Certainly he is the father of at least Israel. But here we have Abraham. He's coming and he meets Melchizedek. And and Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is greater than he is. This man is, is superior. He has superior greatness and therefore he pays a tenth or a tithe of all those of the plunder, all the spoils of war were, were given to Melchizedek. And so for that reason, we see Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek's priesthood superior to Israel's priesthood. Because remember, from Abraham comes, he's the forefather of this priestly system, this, this tribe, if you will. And so uh, he's being the father of all those tribes. Well, guess what? Abraham submits himself to Melchizedek. Then who's the greater? Well, that makes Melchizedek the greater. And so that's the argument that the author of Hebrews is using here. Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek's priesthood greater than Israel's priesthood. The second argument that the text gives us is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Look what verse 6 says. Verse 6, But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And so, as the blesser, Melchizedek, therefore, was superior to Abraham. Why? Why is that? Well, at least in a formal biblical blessing, the superior always blesses the inferior, as verse 7 mentions. Therefore, since Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, then he must also be superior then to Abraham's descendants. Included in that would be the Levites. Consequently, then, the the whole priesthood coming from Levi uh, had to be subservient, submitted to the greater priesthood being Melchizedek's. You say, well, what is the reason for all this talk about Melchizedek? Well, lest you lose sight of the greater context, we ended in chapter 6 by talking about Melchizedek. So so just back up, look at uh, chapter 6, the last verse, verse 20. Because it says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we're introduced to Melchizedek there. We don't know a whole lot about this guy, so Hebrews is telling us who Melchizedek is. So what is the reason for all this talk about Melchizedek? Well, he shows our need for something that's superior. See, you and I need a king of righteousness, verse 2 says. We need a king of peace. However, Melchizedek wasn't the man for the job. He's called that, but Melchizedek could never make you righteous and could never give you ultimate peace. The Bible says you and I need someone who is without beginning and without end. Well, Melchizedek is described that way, but he did have a beginning and did have an end. But it's pointing to the greater priesthood. It's pointing to Christ's priesthood who did not have a beginning and an end. Praise God, you have a 
great high priest who ever lives and intercedes for you. And so the point is, Melchizedek is only a type. King Jesus is the one who gives you righteousness and peace. Someone who has an indestructible life is the one who is going to live on and will never end. He's the one who will never die. The one who never needs to be replaced. And so we need someone who is greater than Abraham. We need someone greater than Levi. We need someone greater than Melchizedek even. We need someone who is like Melchizedek, but is better than Melchizedek. We need someone who blessed Abraham, who received tithes from Abraham, and in a sense, from Levi through Abraham. We need a new and a greater priest, so much greater than verse 11 says. Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Rhetorical question. Melchizedek's priesthood was the ultimate, then, or Aaron's priesthood was the ultimate. We don't need Jesus. And so all the Old Testament priesthood could do was point toward the one superior priest, whose sacrifice, of course, was himself, and whose eternal intercession would then guarantee our eternal salvation. My friends, here's the good news. All of our needs, certainly our spiritual needs, have been met by the superior priest king. And not only is he priest and king, he's also a prophet. And of course, I'm talking about King Jesus. And so the appropriate response, as we see that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood, is then what was Melchizedek's priesthood pointing to? We need to find that out. Of course, it's pointing to Jesus, the ultimate great high priest. And we need to praise God for our great high priest, the one who ever lives to intercede for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this beautiful comparison. May we see Jesus. May we not lose sight of Him as we study some of these people that aren't so familiar like Melchizedek. We're thankful for this beautiful picture, this this type, this comparison, and may we may we understand how Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Israel's priesthood. And then may we see how Jesus, our great high priest, is after that order of Melchizedek. And therefore Jesus' priesthood is the, the best, is supreme, is superior over everything else. So we praise You for how you, you, You've shown this to us. May we believe it. May we live this out however You want to, to for us to apply this to our lives. May we not follow after the inferior things that will not ultimately satisfy. May we continue to look to Christ who is the author of finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.